Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the 115th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning from the past week. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How was your weekend? It was awesome. Good. It was awesome. Had a great weekend. Yeah, it was great for Kenzie and I. It was the first weekend that we've been home, just me and her, quite some time. So just getting stuff done at the new house was nice just to wake up in your own bed, just the two of you for the weekend with no really any major plans on the schedule. Those are great weekends. Those are great weekends. Hopefully more of those coming up. Um, Before we begin, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on September 10th. And this data is from Coifin. Uh, S&P 500 index down 1% so far for September and up 19.16% for the year. The Dow down 1.75% for the month and up 13.5% for the year. The NASDAQ down 0.4% for the month and up 18.3% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 1.9% in September and up 13% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.35% for the month and up 9.9% for the year. Three-month T-bill unchanged from last week at 0.05%. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.22%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.3%. Big news headlines, current events from the week. Pretty quiet week, Matt. Um, S&P 500 index was down about 1.7% last week. Um, and it was pretty weak, you know, the whole week. I think it was four straight days in a row where, where we were down. But just a reminder to everybody that September is typically the most weak month out of the year. Yeah, so. my, my two cents for, for listeners is, you know, don't read into it. Don't, do not read into this. This is noise in my opinion. Um, I'm really nothing else to say beyond that. Yeah. Um, more noise update. Uh, there's a debt ceiling uh, update. Uh, The federal government will likely run out of cash and could begin to miss payments on its obligations sometime between mid-October and mid-November. According to a new projection from the Bipartisan Policy Center, a Washington think tank, Congress is also trying to pass a spending budget by the end of September. If a new debt ceiling is not approved, we could see a partial government shutdown in Q4. Just a heads up, you're probably going to see this more uh, in the news being talked about. But again, I think it's just more noise and people really shouldn't pay any attention to it when it comes to their investment portfolios. Exactly. I want to say the last time we had a government shut down from point A to point B to when it closed and opened, the market was up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not to say it's going to happen that way again, but just statistically speaking, it doesn't necessarily spell doom and gloom for the market. Right. Yeah. And could actually, if you're a long-term investor, be treated as a buying opportunity if we do get weakness. Yeah. Um, the only other major piece of news I have, Matt, is NFL football's back. It is back. So I enjoyed it over the weekend. Yeah, it was good. It was good. My Washington football team got off to a horrible start as uh, Fitzpatrick went out in the first or second quarter with a hip injury. So hot start for the uh, Washington football team. Bengals won. 
Bengals won. Browns, Browns played really well won. against the Chiefs. Yeah, that, yeah. that bodes really well for Cleveland. I know yeah. it was a tough loss for them at the end, but to see them up nicely at the half, hey, that bodes well for the season for them. Yeah, good weekend for Ohio football. It's minus Ohio State. State. Oh, it's a tough loss. Yeah. The defense just didn't show up. Slight inner cheer from me, but uh, I don't want to get Ohio State uh, Mark fans. is a uh, Pitt fan. <laughs> uh, Penn State. Penn State. I, Penn saw, State. I apologize. Yeah. Penn State. So, so I was happy. I uh, Good. Yeah. Um, let you kick it off with tweets, articles, and research from the week starting to talk about the 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. So I only have two things this week because the first one, Mark's going to take a little longer than normal. Before I begin, why don't you just take 60 seconds and explain what a 60 portfolio means? Yeah, so 60-40 portfolio um, historically has been 60% stock or equity exposure, 40% fixed income or bond exposure. And typically, when you're benchmarking this, it's 60% into the S&P 500, 40% into the aggregate bond index, which is a combination of... Um, investment grade bonds and treasury bonds. Exactly. And so historically, this has been utilized listeners for people that want more of a moderate risk portfolio. There's different terms that they use listeners. Growth and income is another term that they use. So um, this has been very popular for a couple of decades. And Mark, the reason I selected this is I saw this op-ed on September 2nd it's from Michael Rosen. He's a chief investment officer at Angles Investments and uh, Angles Wealth. And I saw this on the CNBC website. So I'm going to spend about roughly two minutes or so reading this. And then I want you and me to have a little bit of a roundtable on this. Mm -hmm. Sound good, Mark? <clears throat> yeah. So I'll start off. In the long run, inflation is investors' biggest threat. Inflation erodes the purchasing power of money. Even modest inflation at 3% annually halves the value of money in 24 years. So outpacing inflation is the primary goal for long-term investors. Beating inflation was not a problem over the past decade. Stocks soared 360% in the past 10 years, averaging more than 16% annualized return. No wonder valuations are near record levels. Bond yields low to begin with have fallen further over the decade. A 10-year Treasury yield is just over 1%. Muni bonds are less than one, he says. Outpacing inflation over the past decade was easy for investors, but the high valuations of stocks and the low yield on bonds means that the next decade will be much more challenging for investors to protect real after-inflation value of their investments. About 20 years ago, Treasuries rallied 31%, and the aggregate bond index rose 18%, as equities fell 49% during the internet bubble collapse. At the start of the pandemic last year, stocks dropped 34%, but treasuries gained just 5%, while the aggregate index actually lost 3%. Yeah, and that's something that I want to talk about. You want to talk about now? Yeah, I just, you know, I think, and especially if you look at like some liquid corporate bond ETFs, they fell like 10 or sometimes some of them even fell like 15% during COVID. So they it's did. like, it begs the question, you know, if it's becoming more and if these fixed income investments are becoming more and more correlated to equities, what's the point in having them in the portfolio? That's the first question. And the second question is, what's the alternative? 
is that do you just have a year or two years worth of living expenses in cash and you stay equities and you and you stay equities or you you invest it in i bonds or you just have it in treasuries like what do you do you know it's just a again it's a tough environment because back in the day you know fixed income was to provide you know a fixed level of income right four to six sometimes even maybe seven percent per year but we're in a completely different environment right now and it begs the question you know why are we invested in fixed income if they're you know if these fixed income investments are becoming more and more correlated to the stock market and if that's the case what are we to do as investors going forward yeah i think it's it's a wonderful question and here is the biggest issue i see with wall street when it comes to this question a lot of major firms are unwilling to make the tough decision and they stick with something called modern portfolio theory. Mm -hmm. And what that dictates is no matter what, you profile an investor at a certain risk tolerance. And from that point, you allocate to certain areas of the market, whether you like them or not. And for me, I think it's a little bit of a CYA for these firms. That's why I really like to invest where you have the ability to overweight and underweight areas you like. Mm -hmm. I don't like the cookie cutter portfolios. And I think that it's going to get harder for those types of cookie cutter models to really perform well in the next decade. Right. Yeah. And I think you have to, you know, and actually I'm, I'm going through this process with uh, Nick, our, our head trader right now. And to look at and see different fixed income investments and see what the drawdown was in periods of stress for the market. So back in um, during COVID in March of 2020, obviously in 09 in the tech bubble, and then the rough period, the Chinese not crisis, but rough time that we had 15, 16 area. Mm -hmm. I want to see, you know, which which of these held up the best because you know right now we're in an environment where you know the fixed income investments are protection of principle or being able to use it to rebalance into stocks when stocks sell off right exactly so i don't want to invest in something that's when the market's down 30 then this is also down 15 or 20 that just doesn't make any sense to me because if that's the case then why not have it all invested in equities that's right right so i i think it's important that we're going through this to, to see, hey, you know, this is actually a different asset class that's going to provide some uncorrelated returns because we don't want to have an asset class. This is directly correlated to stocks when we're trying to have a portion of the portfolio that's somewhat protected or quote unquote safer. Right. Yeah. I mean, we could be going in a period of time where just equity levels within client portfolios are above quote unquote history. Mm -hmm. levels. I mean, I just think that we're in an environment where, you know, the risk reward and fixed income is just not there. No, no. Um, and we highlight that in previous podcasts. Remember, we had the one where we talked about the real return of, of, of high yield bonds. Mm -hmm. And when I went over that, that was insane. Right. Okay. Right. So high quality bonds provide little or no hedge when the stock market plunged because yields were so low. Yields are even lower today. So investors should expect bonds to offer less protection during a stock decline okay high quality bonds earn less than inflation and offer little protection in that sell-off okay um, next an investment portfolio of all equities is likely to outperform inflation over time 
but that would be very volatile overall, subjecting the investors to risk of having to sell stocks to pay expenses at a moment when stocks have declined. And that's another thing that I've gotten questions on is, hey, you know, Mark, should I should I get more aggressive? And I and I'd love to go down that road with with clients and prospects because it's like, yeah, that's fine. And if you're not bothered by volatility in the account and you're not going to need this money for 10 plus years, then yeah, I'm fine with that. But you have to understand that the swings are going to be much more volatile or much wider. And typically, when you ask someone how much volatility they can handle, whatever their answer is, it's usually half of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you think in good times, yeah, I can handle a 20 20 or 30 percent. But then March 2020 happens and people are freaking out. So if you're going to go down that road, you just have to understand, you know, that you have to be in the right mindset to be able to tolerate the volatility. I think with information flow as fast as it is with pre-programmed trading, my two senses in times of market stress, I think you're going to have quicker and more swift corrections, more violent, more violent in a shorter period of time than in the past. Mm-hmm. My two cents. Yeah, agreed. So I'll continue. The traditional portfolio of 60% stocks and 40% bonds was meant to solve the twin objectives of long-term capital appreciation and capital preservation, Michael says. But given today's valuations, that 60-40 portfolio is likely to achieve neither objective, so investors need to start changing their thinking. Capital appreciation above inflation will require owning equities and some equity-sensitive securities like high-yield bonds. This portfolio will be volatile but can offer investors the best chance to outpace inflation. Because of this volatility, this portfolio will not be a reliable source of liquidity for current expenses. For that, investors should also hold a portfolio of cash and cash equivalents, such as very short-term, high-quality bonds. The yield be modest, below inflation, but the purpose of the portfolio is to meet current expenses. Investors can think of holding 6 to 12 months of anticipated expenses in this type of portfolio, replenishing from the long-term portfolio under normal circumstances, and delaying that replenishment when the equity market sells off. Just a couple more points, Mark. The traditional 60-40 portfolio that served investors well for most of the last 40 years, Michael says in his opinion, has reached its expiration date. With yields at all-time lows, valuations near highs, the traditional 60-40 portfolio will likely neither grow in excess of inflation nor provide much downside protection. Investors should hold cash to meet current spending needs and embrace a more volatile portfolio for stocks to achieve real long-term growth. High-quality bonds, the middle ground between cash and stocks, have been squeezed out of their usefulness. Yeah. So it's just interesting, and I know, you know, we talked about several things throughout this, so I don't think there's much more to add, but you know, I do think that, you know, bonds are becoming more correlated to stocks. And for investors who want diversification, that's not a good thing. And, you know, we as investment managers are going to have to, you know, figure out how to handle this going forward as this is going to be the new normal. Yeah. And, and managing the expectations and emotions of it, right? Because it's you're no longer getting four, five, six, seven percent on these fixed income intru- instruments. And, you know, we have to figure out, you know, or we have to at least communicate to clients that that's not happening anymore. And if we're holding a large portion of cash in the account, you know, that's also going to diminish returns. And the only way to get higher returns is to increase your equity exposure. 
but that comes with higher volatility. So you just need to, it's everything, every choice you make in our industry is a cost benefit analysis, right? Absolutely. So you're choosing one thing to give up another thing. You're choosing higher returns to give up lower drawdowns, right? That's right. So it's just, people just need to think about that. I thought it was good to bring up. I know this is something over the podcast you and I will continue to discuss for Mm -hmm. our listeners, but I just want to start throwing it out there that I think, you know, the days of, of, of having that much bond exposure could be changing. Yeah, I agree. All right. I got Scott, one more, Mark. I'm going to turn it back to you. Uh, this is an update on, on real estate. But digging down, it's an update on mortgage originations. Okay. Now, this is a tweet from Allie Wolf. She's the chief economist at Zonda. And this is what she said. This stat is borderline unbelievable, but it's from the New York Fed, so I trust it. The share of mortgages going to borrowers in 2005 with a credit score above 760 was 25%. The same number is 71% for the second quarter of this year. So Mark, in my opinion, another strong data point that I feel supports prices a lot more in today's environment compared to the 0507 housing bubble. Your comments. Yeah, I just think it's another data point to go to show that this is very different than what happened in 07 and 08. And it doesn't mean that prices can't come down. Right. I just don't think you're going to see people to the magnitude just walking away from properties into the massive amounts of foreclosures that we had. No, I don't think you will either. I think that this, you know, this is a completely like fixed income. It's a completely different environment that could come with more challenges. But I, you know, for the people that are calling for the another 07, 08 type of housing crash, you know, I don't think this is even in the same realm. I would agree. So back to you. First thing I have is a tweet from uh, Ryan Dietrich on September 1st, and he said, the S&P 500 is up greater than 20% year to date at the end of August. What's next? Looking back at history, it's higher six out of seven times with only 1987 in the red. So uh, going back through history, the S&P 500 has been up 20% year to date at the end of August, seven times. And it's been higher six out of those seven times. And again, in 1987, it was negative and it was negative, you know, in a big way, th- September through <laughs> December was down 25%. Right. right. Um, but again, very small sample size. So I don't want anyone to take this and run with it. But pointing to history just a data point just a data point again that we've talked about it doesn't mean just because we've had a really strong first half of the year doesn't mean we can't have a strong second half of the year as well i thought about this driving into the office this morning in regards to how many large wall street firms are negative right now and calling for some sort of a sell-off and mark when multiple firms are calling for the same thing, mm-hmm. it usually doesn't happen. Yeah, and I think they almost have to be, right? I think if if they were extremely bullish still, I think people would be like, I'm not, I'm not trusting them because markets have to come back because everyone's in that mindset that we've had such this, you know, 100% plus rally from the March 2020 lows that this 
can't continue higher. So they, I feel like they almost feel like they have to say that. Yeah. Right? And I think they're also doing it to generate some trading activity. Yeah. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. There's uh, a lot more going on behind the scenes than, than just what people think. So, yep. Um, last thing I had was a quote I read on the chart report uh, a couple of weeks ago from Stan Weinstein. And the quote was, I've always found that my most profitable just judgments are made late at night or on weekends. This is no accident. It's a time when you can calmly decipher the charts message. And I think this can be related to kind of everything in life where, especially in our industry, it doesn't do you any good to make big, important decisions during the trading day because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of news flow. But when you're by yourself at night or on the weekends, markets are closed, you can actually think clearly through decisions, take the emotion out of it, and you're better for that, I think. And I think, again, I think that can apply to anything in life, whereas don't make a decision in the heat of the moment when there's craziness going on. Just wait until things are calm. You're by yourself. You can think clearly. And I think that goes a long way. I think this is a wonderful quote. I'm, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I just you know, for example, with our practice, you know, we're very methodical mm -hmm. with our buy sell decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not heated emotional decisions in the middle of a trading day. So I would second this. That's a wonderful quote. Yeah. And I just just my own personal opinion, you know, I can on the weekends or at night when, you know, it's just me and I'm not getting emails and, you know, I can rip through hundreds of charts. I can read all my research that I want to read. And it's just easier to process. I guess listeners um, for you, for those of you who don't know Mark extremely well, this guy probably gets up at six or six 30 on a Saturday morning, gets himself <laughs> a cup of coffee and pours through charts. I do. That's my, that's my morning routine when I'm home. <laughs> it's been, when home. Yeah. When I'm home. So yeah, cup of Joe and my computer with some charts on it and I'm happy camper for a couple hours. I love it. <laughs> Uh, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This one comes from an article on the oblivious investor on August 30th titled Roth conversion frequently asked questions. Okay. And before we dig into this, Matt, can you briefly explain what a Roth conversion is and why some people might consider a Roth conversion in the first place? Yes. So a Roth conversion is where you will pay a one-time upfront tax to move money from your pre-tax traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. That tax depends upon where your income is for that year because anything you convert listeners will be added on top of that and considered ordinary income. There is uh, no income limitation for this capability. In addition, you can do this at uh, any age in life. Mm -hmm. And so the thought process behind it is you're able to take a one-time tax hit. And then from that point going forward, that money will continue to grow tax deferred and come out tax-free. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as advisors, we like to have a bunch of different buckets of money from a tax standpoint, right? So we want to have some tax deferred money because tax deferred money is taxable at ordinary income when it comes out in retirement, i.e. traditional IRA. Right. But when you're married, you know, the standard deduction is around 25,000 now. So you can virtually take like 25,000 out of your your pre-tax 401k or your pre-tax IRA around 25 grand and have it be completely tax free. 
Um, and then we want to have, you know, a bucket of Roth money because all that money is going to be completely tax free. So as advisors, it just helps managing your tax liability in retirement because who wants to pay a lot of taxes in retirement? Nobody. Exactly. Right. Um, so this is just a, a not really a quick FAQ, but um, it, it goes into some detail on some really good aspects of a Roth conversion, because I think there's um, some confusion among, you know, Roth contributions and Roth conversions. So okay. we'll go through a couple of these here. First question is, is there an income limit for Roth conversions? No, there used to be a limit prior to 2010. You could not do a Roth conversion if your modified adjusted gross income exceeded 100,000. But there is no longer an income limit to do so. And people talk about this a lot because you're prohibited from making a Roth IRA contribution if your modified adjusted gross income is over a certain threshold. I think if you're married filing joint, it's around... 205 or 210,000 of modified adjusted gross income where you can't make a Roth contribution, but you can make as much money as you want and still do a Roth conversion. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an income requirement for a Roth conversion? Uh, no. Um, while you or your spouse must have earned income in order to make a Roth IRA contribution, you do not have to have any earned income in order to do a Roth conversion. Is there a maximum amount you can convert per year? No, there's no maximum conversion other than the fact that you can't convert more than you have in tax deferred accounts, obviously. The government will gladly take your tax money. They will gladly take it. Yes. Um, Can you do a partial conversion or do you have to convert the whole account at once? You can do a partial conversion of a traditional IRA. For example, converting $20,000 of a $100,000 account is perfectly allowed. And in most cases in which conversions make sense, doing partial conversions over a period of years is in fact what is most desirable. Converting only enough to put your income up to a particular threshold each year rather than converting the whole account at once. Converting the whole account at once would often mean paying a higher tax rate on the conversion as it would mean having a very high level of income that year. Mm Note that the same is true for a 401k. If your 401k allows for in-plan conversions, you can do a partial Roth conversion uh, to a Roth 401k. So that's why, you know, a lot of people just are like, you know, when they learn about the Roth, they're like, oh, I just want to convert my whole traditional IRA into my Roth. And it's like, well, let's hold on a second. Let's run the math because it could skyrocket your tax bill for the next year. You could have a large amount of money being taxed at a higher tax rate for not really a good reason so usually when we recommend it we'll we'll split it up over a three five or like seven year period so you spread out the tax liability right yep um this is an interesting one and probably the most confusing confusing question here so i'm going to go through it and if people have questions on that you can email us at um, inquiries at justifwealthmanagement.com and we can explain this a little better but i don't want to spend too much time on it but it is a little confusing to follow okay um and the question is how is a roth conversion um taxed so generally a roth conversion will be taxable as ordinary income if however you made non-deductible contributions a portion of the conversion will not be taxable specifically the percentage of the conversion that is not taxable is calculated as follows 
your basis in the traditional IRAs, which is your basis in the IRAs is the sum of your non-deductible contributions divided by the sum of your traditional IRA balances on 1231 of the year of the conversion and any distributions and conversions from traditional IRAs that occurred that year. So for listeners that are unaware, you can make after-tax contributions to tax-deferred accounts. You can. You just have to track the basis. You just have to track the basis, okay? So for example, if you have made, and a lot of people, what they do is they'll make after-tax contributions to their traditional IRAs if they make too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA. That way they can, you know, convert after-tax money into a Roth IRA with virtually no tax consequences. But when you have a traditional IRA with deductible contributions and non-deductible contributions, that's where it gets a little messy. And that's what we're talking about right now. Yep. So for example, if you've made $20,000 of non-deductible contributions over the years, you have $20,000 of basis in your traditional IRAs. If you do a $100,000 conversion at the end of the year, your traditional IRAs are in total worth $400,000. Then 4% of your $100,000 conversion would be non-taxable. That is $20,000, which is the basis in the traditional IRAs, divided by $500,000, which is the sum of the conversions and distributions for the year and the sum of your traditional IRA balances at the end of the year equals 4%. So you would have $96,000 of gross income as a result of the $100,000 conversion. Something that surprises most people is that if, for example, you do a Roth conversion in March and then in November of the same year, you roll a 401k into a traditional IRA, that rollover is going to affect the portion of the conversion that's taxable because it will increase your traditional IRA balance on 1231 of that year. Another key point here is that all of your traditional IRAs, including SEP and simple IRAs, are considered to be a single IRA for the purpose of this calculation. Yep. So, again, a lot of moving parts there, but I think the big thing, the takeaway here is people think that automatically if they have, you know, $10,000 of non-deductible contributions to a traditional IRA that they can convert 10,000 tax Just free that portion. Yeah, but that's not the case. You have to take into account what percentage of that is it of the overall traditional IRA and then you go from there of how much you can contribute, you know, or excuse me, not contribute, convert tax free to the Roth yep. IRA. Yep. Do you have any more cuz I got one. Go ahead. Let's see if it's on here. I got a question about this over the weekend from a client. Question was, he's of RMD age Mm -hmm. and asked, am I able to just take my RMD and convert it to a Roth IRA? Uh, We actually might get there. So let me, I can't remember exactly, but we might get there. If not, we'll answer it. Bingo. Okay. All right. Um, How is an in-plan Roth conversion... um, with a 401k tax. And as with a uh, conversion of a traditional IRA, the conversion will generally be taxable. Also, similarly, if you have made non-deductible, non-Roth contributions to the plan, a portion of the conversion will be non-taxable. Again, it's a pro rata calculation. However, for this calculation, unlike with IRAs, the 401k is not aggregated with other 401k plans. So it's just, it's just, 
it's hard for people to like follow along with all this stuff because you have IRAs that are aggregated and 401ks are not aggregated. So again, that's why I reach out to an advisor or do some research on this stuff so you know what you're dealing with because there's so many little nuances that people Absolutely. wouldn't know about, right? Absolutely. Can a Roth conversion trigger the 10% penalty? If you are under the age of 59 and a half, any money that comes out of the traditional IRA and does not end up going into the Roth IRA may be subject to the 10% penalty. For instance, if you take $100,000 out of your traditional IRA, $75,000 goes into your Roth IRA, and $25,000 is withheld to pay the taxes on the conversion or distribution, the $25,000 would be subject to the 10% penalty if you're under age 59 and a half. So as a reminder for listeners, you take money out of your traditional or Roth IRAs, there's a 10% penalty associated with it. Under 59 and a half. Under 59 and a half. And obviously, your contributions to the Roth IRA do not fall in that category. You can take those out whenever you want. Correct. Um, but if you're converting, you know, money from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, don't withhold taxes because in the government's eyes, that money is not getting converted. So that's, that's right. subject that's to the 10% penalty. Yep. So you just have to realize that at the end of the year, you have to be prepared for a little larger of a tax bill because there's no withholding from that Roth conversion. Precisely. Right. One is a Roth conversion tax. The Roth conversion is taxable in the year in which it occurs. There's no I'm doing this in March of 22 and I want it to count for 2021 like contributions um, for IRAs. So you just have to keep that in mind. Yep. It's a calendar year transaction. Yes. How are distributions from a Roth IRA treated after a conversion? When amounts that were converted to a Roth IRA are distributed from the Roth IRA, they will not be subject to ordinary income tax. They might be subject to a 10% penalty, but that penalty will not apply if you're at least age 59 and a half or if the conversion was at least five years ago. If the conversion itself wasn't taxable or if one of the several exceptions applies, or excuse me, or if one of the several sections applies. Can I do a Roth conversion of an inherited IRA? No, unless you inherit it from your spouse, in which case you're allowed to treat the account as your own, which allows you to do a conversion into your own Roth IRA. Yep. So just as a reminder, if you're the beneficiary of your spouse's IRA, your spouse passes away, you can take over and take ownership of that account as if it were your own. It goes into your sole name. Right, exactly. Assuming you're the primary beneficiary. But... It's not the case for if you're the beneficiary for other people. So when you have an inherited IRA, you can't do Roth conversion. Yep. Okay. Can I recharacterize or undo a Roth conversion? No. As a result of the change made by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Acts of 2017, you can no longer recharacterize a Roth conversion. So prior to 2017, if you got into the next tax year and you were like, ooh, the Roth conversion negatively affected me Put and me I got a, too high of a tax bracket. Yeah, you could go back and undo it for that year. But 2017 going forward, you can no longer do it. So if you do it, you got to make sure that you're running your calculations and it makes sense because there's no going back at that point. And this is why we have a financial planning arm. Yes, exactly. Um, does a Roth conversion, so maybe this doesn't get at it. Does a Roth conversion satisfy my RMD for the year? Here yeah, we go. it kind of does. Yeah. 
Um, no, if you have to take a required minimum distribution in a given year, a Roth conversion does not count towards that RMD. So you can do more above it to convert. Yes. But you have to satisfy the RMD first. first. Correct. Yep. Um, so I thought that was really good. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of hype about Roth IRAs and a lot of questions and there's, it, it's just confusing. You know, you have all these rules about contributions, you have all these rules about conversions, and sometimes people don't even know what a Roth conversion is. The tax code is so complicated. Yeah, it is. It is. So, um, anything else before we leave it there for the week? Got about two weeks left in the uh, third quarter. Again, September tends to be a little bit of a of a negative month statistically for the market. Mm -hmm. My two cents, don't read through the short-term noise. Yeah, just, agreed. Yeah, the best thing I could say. Yeah, don't no, read don't, into it. Just don't get too involved in the news headlines. Yep. Um, we'll be back next week with episode number 116. So thank you for tuning in this week and we'll see y'all next week. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also check out the podcast tab on their website. Site. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.